Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. I'm getting a little annoyed on Facebook. I always go on to Facebook. I, I get in touch with all my high school friends, you know, college friends. I promote my show. Lots of good friends on Facebook. But the problem lately is I'm getting lots of these friend requests, and there's some that are just weird names I can't read, and they have no face. They have no profile. And then there's the half-naked girls that are like requesting you, and you know they're complete BS bogus accounts, but what's sick about it is, is I find out I have like eight mutual friends who are friends with them, and I'm thinking, who the hell is taking these accounts on? I know it's a lot of comedians I know who want to build their numbers up, but they're all fake. And then the other thing I hate is lately is a big trend is, you know, there's groups on Facebook. You know, I have a Cooper Talk page. I don't update it. I haven't updated it for two years. You go through my personal page. But there's groups, and the people add you to the group, and I'm fine if you request me and say, hey, do you want to be in this group? But if I want to be in it, I'll be in it. But some people are just adding me to these groups. So I'm in a group I don't want to be in. And that's one thing to piss you off. But then you sit there and you you get out of the group and they keep adding you. No lie. I had four people re-add me into a group the other day. And then I finally found out, because I do it off my phone. I found out if you go to your desktop, you can actually get out of the group forever. But people, if you have a group and people get out, they don't like you. Don't get back in. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, it, it's you know this this guy's great. I, I'm gonna be honest. It's it's one of these actors who I see like a few weeks ago. I had Patrick Fischler on, who whenever I see him, he kills it. My guest tonight, whenever I see him, he he kills it. He's he's always on. He makes me laugh. You know, my my girlfriend loved him in About a Boy. She thought he was so sweet. And that's Chris Diamantopoulos. How you doing, Chris? How are you? Good to see you. Now you're new. To, you said you're new to Facebook. And I'm, yeah, I'm a I'm a dinosaur with regard to the social media stuff. So um, and I I when uh, Stooges first came out the the uh, studio um, wanted us to, you know, to have some sort of a presence, and I didn't have any. I, I didn't have Facebook or, or, or Twitter or Instagram, and so I started a Twitter page for, and I had it for just a couple of months to try and sort of uh, stay on top of what the studio wanted us to do. And it didn't really, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I wasn't engaged in it in any way. So I just kind of shut it down after, after all of that uh, rigmarole ended, and um, and then recently. I started a new job, and it was highly recommended that I, you know, join the the rest of the world. And so I I, I have now a, a new Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook uh, page. You know, what I love I love the fact that you say uh, I started a new job. Like like yeah, hey, I just started uh, selling insurance. I mean, you're you're a known <laughs> actor, a voice actor. I mean, it's like it's not. A, I mean, it's a new job for you, but for for most people that term a new job. See, that's you're very humble. That's good because you're like it's a job. Look, I've been I've been a working actor my entire life. I start. I really I I can say that in all honesty. I started acting. Uh, in TV commercials and doing extra work and theater work when I was nine years old in Toronto, Canada. I had read that. Now, yeah. now, how did you gravitate as, at nine? As a little kid, did you say I want to do this, or it's just you odd? Know, yeah, and and I'm you know my family is like the least sort of stage family ever. I mean, my my folks are Greek immigrants, both from Athens, and uh, you know I was a I was a really um, high energy kid, and my mom, credit to my mother, her instincts, you know, watching me with all my antics at home, she thought, you know, we got to put this energy into something. And there was a, a local, you know, downtown Toronto, there was this uh, acting class and uh, it was, you know, nine Saturdays in a row. And then at the end of it, the, you put on a show and some agents come and she's, you know, they scrounged together the money and, and set me up for this class. And I, I went and did that. I was, I must've been, yeah, eight years old. And I had a ball doing it. It was like improv stuff and comedy stuff. And I loved it. And I, and I met, you know, like-minded kids. Most of the other kids were older. And, um, 
and I got this local agent, and and that I sort of was off and running. You know, I, I had a real interest in it. I always loved movies, loved TV, uh, loved going to the theater with with school trips and stuff like that. And so it was, I was hooked instantly. So you start doing this, and you start booking commercials, which must be amazing for a little kid. I mean, you're just going for fun, and then there's some cash in the commercials. I didn't have a clue what any of it really meant, what any of it was, and. The cash was great because I was able to help my folks out. I had no idea that any cash was coming in. They, you know, they, they sort of, it was, it was a, a good time for all that to be happening. I, I sort of started at a, at a, you know, started around nine and then by around 11, I started hitting a real sort of physical awkward phase Right. and uh, the agent stopped calling. I was, I was really that, that pre-puberty thing hit me hard and it lasted probably until I was about 18 or 19. And so I, I remember morning not having any more action. Like at 11, I was all dried up. Right. It's, it's, but that must be hard also because, you know, it's like anything. As kids were sensitive, when you go through puberty, you're sensitive. And now you're a working actor and you must be sitting there going, I mean, to st- I mean, there's a lot of rejection in the Hollywood world. But to start getting rejection at early, 11. Man. I learned I mean, early. So what, I mean, what did, did your parents say to you? Well, now, you're going to a stage, you No, know, I'll tell you, man. It, it's interesting. And, and I probably wouldn't have been able to surmise it this way even a few years ago. But. It's really all great the way it's happened. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. You know, the the rejection is ongoing and will be forever as long as I'm in the industry. That's just a given. But I feel like I'm such a naturally sensitive person that I think getting rejected day in and day out from an early age is just what the doctor ordered for me because it actually helped me build a minimal thick skin. You know, without it, I would have just been a, a puddle. So I think the rejection was really good for me but no you know nobody really sort of quantified that the calls stopped coming in i really sort of put two and two together and and i realized when i'd call my agent oh they're busy they couldn't answer the phone whatever and then they finally just dropped me so what i i kind of put two and two together and realized uh i want to keep working and i want to keep doing stuff so i just started going to the um the uh art section classifieds in the local newspapers looking for any uh amateur work and any available productions that wanted background work or literally anything and i just started setting myself up for all those things uh and that and that's how i slowly got into musical theater and realized oh i can kind of carry a tune i can kind of sing and then i realized wow i actually i actually can sing and then in doing that in high school and doing it in amateur theater it sort of created this whole new career for me that that i went into for a good uh, almost 15 years and i worked on broadway so you went, you you have this this niche now. You know where you're going. You're like, okay, I'm good at this musical theater, but you're still a young guy. You're in Toronto. How do you end up in New York? And what are you doing in between that? Because you know, it's it's a big bridge from Toronto yeah. to New York. And I, I mean, I so I did everything I could possibly do that was on the amateur level uh, in terms of uh, theater and film. And um, when I was 17, I realized really quickly that. I could sing, and then as soon as I figured out I could sing, I sang every day and everywhere I possibly could, much to my family and my brother's chagrin. He was literally just like, shut up, enough. But I, I, I do have to say, I sort of, I self-taught myself within the course of a year and a half to really sort of run the facility, the whole facility of my voice from top to bottom, and I, I had and have a, a pretty big vocal range. So um, when, when it came time for the school musical, I, I really... Um, I strongly suggested to my music teacher who started seeing that I was, you know, really engaged in this, that we do Man of La Mancha, which is sort of a big production. And, and one thing led to another and we ended up 
I ended up persuading him to do it, and we did it. And when I did that, I realized that if I could pull that off, this is sort of really something I want to do. And um, I found a, a, another local agent who wasn't, you know, sort of the cutesy kid agent, but was actually a talent agent. And uh, I tracked him down and uh, sat down with him and showed him all the amateur stuff I'd done. And he was this great personality, this really great guy named Frank Hogg. He's not with us anymore, rest his soul. But anyway, he saw that I had all the energy in the world and all the best intentions, but he really sort of wanted to hone me in. And there was an audition for a professional show called Forever Plaid. It was a big off-Broadway production. Yeah, great show, great uh, four, four-part harmony show. And they were building the new company in Toronto and building a new company in Vancouver. And uh, I went into the open call. It was, you know, like an eight-hour day where everyone from Toronto was there. And they ended up casting, you know, three 30-year-old guys and me. And uh, and that really changed everything. I left high school just before graduation. I went to Vancouver to open the company. And I worked in Vancouver for a year. It was, you know, it was my college years, basically. It was going to Vancouver and, and getting an apartment and, you know, doing this show. And then they brought me into Toronto. And then from there... I, I met um, this producer named Garth Drabinsky who worked for Livent, who was doing all the Phantom of the Opera and all of the big productions. And they brought me into audition for one of their shows. Andrew Lloyd Webber had this new show called The Music of the Night, which was a compilation of all, all his stuff. And I was, I was, I must have been eight, 18, 19 years old. And they needed an understudy for the male lead, this great singer named Colm Wilkinson. And he was singing these duets with, and trios with uh, Melissa Manchester and Betty Buckley. And I, I ended up getting the part of this understudy and they never thought the guy was going to be sick because he, he was a workhorse. And uh, it turned out that I had to go on a few times and sing these duets with these amazing women. And then one thing led to another and I, I ended up getting Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I understudied Donny Osmond. I met a girl on that. She lived in New York. I wanted to be with her in New York. I moved to New York, auditioned for Les Mis, and I was in Les Mis on Broadway. So you get on Broadway. Now, how old are you? 21 so that must be you know first of all uh, i bet a lot of actors you know you know that's anything you know people are they're probably like god that punk you know like well, I listen mean, so i guess i i could see that because i say that all the time you know i, I in particularly in in the new leg of my career which has been the last maybe 12 years television and, and film you know it's a grind though and it's all about how long you grind and so i i was grinding from nine right until 21 to get there. I, and I, I, I worked literally every day at this thing. So, yeah. Now, uh, you know, you're right, though, because 21 is a super young age. I was in the ensemble in Les Mis, right? Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's hey, uh, there's cats, there's Les Mis. Right. I mean, that's like the big. I was, a, I was a happy camper, but I always had my sights set on doing more and more and more. And it, it wasn't from a standpoint of, um, I just knew that. The more that I could challenge myself with, the better I could become, and the more uh, engaged I would be in the material that I was working on. Um, and I always had it in the back of my mind that that agent dropped me at like ten, eleven. Right. I always wanted to get back on camera, so I just needed to. I needed to like you know find a way back. And you know, New York was a great training ground for me, and particularly just being on stage eight shows a week. You know, every week, month after month, year after year, I did Les Mis, and then I... I How long did you do Les Mis for? I did Les Mis for two and a half years. So you're sitting there, so as you said, every night you're getting, you know... And it's, it's a grind, man. Two, yeah, it's yeah. like you have Sundays off. No, no, you, no Mondays you have Mondays off. Mondays off, off. yeah. Two, so two, sat, uh, two Wednesday, two Saturday. And it is a grind, because a friend of mine was in Phantom of the Opera, mm. 
and he said, you know, he he actually he was Raul or whatever. That Raul, was. yeah, yeah. Oh, and then he took over for the Phantom. Then yeah, cool. Did it in Vegas, and he yeah. said, problem was everyone else, you know, he's the Phantom. He has to sing. Everyone else is having out, going out having fun. He goes, right. I can't do anything. I'm in Vegas because gotta live like a monk. Yeah, my voice, I I can't. My has to be right. Yeah, he goes out and talks all night. And, he's done. And you're, I mean, at a young age, and you're in New York, you're on Broadway. I mean, it's like that's as a actor that must be an amazing feeling at a young age so now after les mis where do you go so i while i was in les mis i did a bunch of um like summer stock stuff i would take sort of leaves of absence to go do you know other roles like evita and, and all these other things in local local playhouses like pittsburgh civic light opera and sort of all over and then there was an audition for the touring company of the full monty and i was dating a girl while i was in les mis who was also in les mis and things weren't working out with us and I just thought maybe it'd be best if I just left the company you know it wouldn't be awkward for her I would leave I'll audition for this full full Monty tour maybe I'll get it and everyone will be happy it won't be so awkward and so I auditioned for it and I got it but she auditioned for it too and she got it <laughs> so there we were awkwardly on tour, on tour together she's a lovely person but it just you know it wasn't wasn't working out so anyway I went to Chicago um uh, to Toronto and Chicago with the Full Monty, and then uh, came back to Broadway with it. And um, and while I was doing the Full Monty, I realized at that point that I really, I really sort of wanted to make it back and like make it back on camera and actually start a, an adult career on 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 screen. And that's when I met my wife um, randomly on the subway. She was a young actress; she was 22. Uh, we had this 10-minute conversation while riding the train, just about acting, and she was telling you know i was kind of you know telling her that i was really ready for a change and I, I needed to do something else and 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 she just sort of said well why don't you why don't you quit your job and move to los angeles that must be yeah it must be something different because you had been very successful in theater i yeah. mean you think about it you know the yeah. full monty i mean these you're not in you know you're not in these little plays that i was very blessed you no yeah. you're right so yep. you're doing that and i think and i i think also it's, it's something as an actor you must sit there and start going you know what? I don't want to do. I mean, theater's fun, but as you said, it's a grind. And you sit there and you go, you know, and oh, I have to travel. I mean, it just must be a. a I, I used to stand up comedy on the road. Yep. And the difference that was that was every weekend a week you were gone. Yep. And it after a while everything looks the same. But for you as an actor, you must want to say, hey, I got to really. You know what was interesting for me was I I've uh, I've always had all these different voices in, in my head, <laughs> um, and I've always I've always known that. I'm happiest when I'm uh, learning something new and doing something that maybe scares me a little bit and and performing. So what's great about the look, the theater is is really magnificent and I'm really grateful for the time I spent on it and uh, spent uh, on stage and I I look back and realize that the reason that I was just so ready to leave was because I was a young I, you know I was in my 20s and I just I wanted to see what else was out there and you know I by no means conquered broadway you know i was i was a, a working actor then i'm a working actor now I'm, I'm just working in a different capacity now than i was then i just knew that i had to I, I needed to meet some new faces i needed to get out of the city and and try something new i was a little comfortable i think i i just started doing some like voiceover campaigns and some commercial on-camera commercials and so i was making a pretty good living uh, and i was grateful for it but i I was starting to get comfortable, and I was only 25. Yeah, so now do you decide that you're going to move to L.A.? Yeah, so uh, Becky and I, we had just met. Um, she she suggested we go out for pilot season, so I gave my my 
um, two weeks notice to full Monty. Uh, I quit the show, which is, you know, it was pretty terrifying for me. I hadn't been, uh, I hadn't not worked in many, many, many years. So it was terrifying to not have a job, but we moved out to LA, uh, took a little sublet and, uh, and I didn't work or even have an audition for almost two years. Did you have an agent? Nope. So you're coming from this, you have a good resume from Broadway, yeah. and you're coming out, and you're a good-looking guy. It's not like you're some oh. ogre coming out, like, going, hey, you know, it's like, I mean, it, so was that frustrating, and how'd you keep your mind in the game? Because it must be, you had been so luck, not lucky, but... No, you're right. There was a lot of, there was, I mean, it, 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 it took some chutzpah to, to get myself in the situations, but there's a lot of luck. I mean, it's all luck in many ways, man. So... You know, I came out to L.A. just expecting that the passion, the tenacity, and the talent would measure up to something. And most of the agents I met with were very frank with me and just uh, told me that I, I wasn't attractive enough, to actually, to be to work on to work on camera, to work in television, and that I looked a lot older than I was. I was 26, and I, I probably looked like I was 40. I'm 40 now. I finally aged into myself. Right. <laughs> but um, and most of them said that all of my theatrical work was going to be a detriment on my resume because. They'd look at that and say, "Oh, he's too broad, or it's too theater, it's too dramatic. You know, it's not screen enough." So, for the longest time, I didn't have a resume. I, I, I hadn't done anything, so it was very frustrating. I, I just, all I wanted to do was go back to New York, and I just bought an apartment there, and it was just sitting there. And my wife, my girlfriend at the time, kept saying, "No, we got to stay. We, you, this is what you want to do. You got, you just got to get through." And the, the worst part was, I had agents in New York saying, "There's work. They want you. You know, there's this, there's this, there's this." And I sort of said to myself, "No, I gotta, I, I can't, I can't say yes. I have to try and do this." It was, it was not fun for a couple of years. When do you start getting work out here? I mean, do- um, it really. So my wife started working immediately, and she's, I mean, she's a, an amazing talent, and she's incredibly professional, and she's. It doesn't hurt that she's in, impossibly beautiful, but she. For, she's still very young looking for for her age, but at the time she looked like she was sixteen. And she was 23, 24, and she looked like a 16-year-old. So there was a ton of work for her. So she came out and she started working right out the gate. And what was great about that was I got to learn a lot watching her. I got to learn about the mechanics of the industry. And, and I didn't even know what a pilot was when I came out here. I, they, everyone kept talking about pilots. And I was like, what the? I, I thought it was referring to some sort of a flight academy. I really right. had no clue what the hell they were talking about. No, I wish I was lying. Um, so I started working when I realized... And this is this is what worked for me, and this is the truth. I kept getting, you know, a random appointment once every six or seven months, and I'd get it the day of, and I'd go in and I'd bomb. I just couldn't do well. And there were two times where I had where they called a freelance agency called me and said, "Hey, there's an appointment. It's coming in in four days. You're going to go to this audition in four days. We'll get you the material." They got me the material a little early, and I actually just took the time to work on the stuff and memorize it and make some choices. And that happened maybe twice in the first year. And both times I got callbacks, and both times I got a chance to meet the producers and work with the directors. I didn't get the job, but it showed me at least, it sort of upped my level of confidence to say, well, okay, so given an opportunity that I can actually prepare for, that I might remotely be right for, I can, you know, I can be down to one of the, you know, one of the five guys that they're thinking of. And as soon as that happened, uh, it, it put a little pep in my step, and it got me doing my old searching in the indie circuit thing for anything that was happening. I, I booked a couple of independent films, put together a little reel, had a little bit of a resume, and then I finally got an agent. Once I got the agent, I basically said to them, send me in for anything. 
It doesn't matter if it's one role, one line on a soap opera. I don't care what it is. Send me in for it. I just I want to meet every casting director. I want every opportunity I can get. And I started going in for everything. And then I started booking. One line here, two lines there. I think the first gig I booked was Frasier. Jeff Greenberg was a casting director, and he was, he was amazing. I got the audition the day of. I went in, and I paraphrased every line. I did terribly. And he, he told me off, and he said, look, it's a sitcom, but to these writers, it's Shakespeare. So say the say the lines that are written, you know, and if you need time to work on them, wait out in the waiting room and learn the bloody lines. And it was amazing that he did that and then let me come back in because I did and I did the lines and I got the part. It was a small part, but it was enough to give me the confidence to push even further. And it was, I think it was within that month, once I got that part, I probably booked a string of other little guest stars that, you know, grew from two lines to five lines to three scenes to six scenes. And once I did that, I realized, okay, I I can do this. It's just a matter of numbers. The more I audition, the more opportunity I'll have to book. And the more I book, the more confidence I'll have to go for the stuff that, you know, can actually build a career for me. And um, it was an audition for a David Kelly pilot where they were looking for an Italian chef that sort of opened my eyes to the memory of the fact that what I wanted to do was play with these voices in my head. And uh, it was Jason, it was a Jason Kadem show and he was just lovely. And he let me think that I had them all fooled that I was Italian straight off the boat. And I went for it and, and did this pilot and the show didn't get picked up, but that sort of locked it in for me that what I really was, was a character actor. And I'm, just had to sort of keep working until I got older. But I mean, the character actor is always the best because you know you got to play everything. It's 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 interesting. That's why I have I have so many character actors on my show because mm-hmm. they're just you know, you guys go on and you you deliver. I mean, it's cool. like you watch it and you go, oh yeah, you remember that person. You know, you don't always know their name. Sure, but I do because I'm a geek like that. I know you know. But so now you're working on now. When's your first recurring? Was it the starter wife or? Oh, that's a good question. I think the, no, the first recurring thing I did came, I, I did this TV movie called Behind the Camera, The Unauthorized Story of Mork and Mindy, which was sort of one of these expose, sensationalized NBC TV throwaway movies. It's like a million dollar budget. But it was an opportunity for me to play, you know, arguably one of the greatest comic talents that's, you know, that, that was ever here. And it was a chance for me to try yet again another voice or many voices actually and that um that led to an arc on a show called state of mind uh that starred lily taylor it was on lifetime okay i think i did 10 episodes on that and then i think the next the next recurring was on starter wife yeah no it must no that was a series regular actually on starter wife it must be something you know to play robin williams just for the fact that and you've done this later when you played mo uh, it's just one of those things where people, critics are going to slam. I mean, it's the thing is, no matter, you can be the best Robin Williams there is, but people are going to sit there and go, oh, you know, well, sure. he wasn't that. I mean, that we a little uh, intimidated to go into a role of such a legend. I mean, he's, he's, I mean, he's passed, but yeah. he was such a comedic legend yeah. back then even. You know, um, I wasn't, uh, and this is going to sound cheesy, but it's true. Uh, my intentions were really pure. Um, I look, they were going to make this movie whether I did it or not. It was going to happen whether I did it or not. I was an actor that was looking for an opportunity to stretch and show my chops. Most of the good roles go to the actors that are already established. We all know that. And so 
uh, you have to take a chance when you're when you're starting out. And for me, it was well, let me do the let me do the best that I can do while trying to actually venerate the image of the subject I'm portraying. And um, I didn't think twice about how it was going to be received. And the truth of the matter is that it was critically received really well. Um, and I, I never read that stuff, but I remember my agent at the time flipped out when the Hollywood Reporter and, and Variety gave really great performance reviews. Uh, and, and I was thrilled with that. Um, look, you're going to have detractors at right. every step of the game. So, I mean, there's no there's no point in trying to please anybody, really. Um no, I for me the other great thing was nobody knew me. Nobody knew me, so I was able to do the job. You know, it aired opposite the NCAA championship finals, so like eighty thousand people saw it. Right. So it it <laughs> it didn't really matter, um, but it was it was great fun. And you you mentioned Mo, and and you know the Stooges was very similar. You know, everyone was ready to hate it. Um, what's really funny was it was a New York Times critics pick, and no one would really know that. May, a, because the studio didn't put anything behind any of that, but B, because you just wouldn't expect that. And you don't do it for that reason, you know? So you do the, the Mark and then you're doing the starter wife. You're doing different, you're different, you're doing comedies pretty much. Yeah, I, I think, so what ended up happening was after, after, uh, State of Mind was a, was a drama, uh, uh, Starter Wife was a comedy, and then I and then I did a season of Twenty Four. What was that like? Because it was such that's a very popular show. I loved working on that show. And you're you're coming into yeah. I played the chief of staff to Cherry Jones, president. I mean, she's just a, a brilliant actor, and uh, it was a such a well oiled machine because it was I think it was season eight. Um, so I loved it for a number of reasons. One because I thought they shot in a very dynamic way, but because of the way they shot, it also was a terrific schedule for me as an actor because my wife was shooting. Ugly Betty in New York, and I was shooting 24 in L.A., and so they did this, uh, what they call block shooting. They would set up a set and then shoot every scene within a few episodes that takes place on that set. So I could shoot out two or three episodes in two or three days and then have several weeks off so I could fly to New York and spend some time with my wife. So I, I loved it for that reason, um, but uh, I had a great time. I had a great time doing that show. The, the, the camera work was great. The actors were great. It moved quick. Um, that was good. That was good fun. Now you get to play Robin Williams, and then you get to play Frank Sinatra. Yeah, right. Actually, and that was from the same camp as Twenty Four. It was those guys that actually put together the Kennedys. So, how do you get prepared to play? Sin I mean, well, the Sinatra thing is really interesting, and a, a lot of you know, it, it, nobody really could or would know this, but the mission was to play a Sinatra that we haven't seen before. They didn't want the Sinatra that we've seen a million times. They wanted a sort of penitent. Uh, humbled Sinatra. They wanted Sinatra as influenced by the magic of the Kennedys. So they really didn't want grandstanding Sinatra. They really didn't want the bravado. They wanted, um, and they didn't want a direct impression either. That was the other thing that they, that was the, the missive that they put out to all of us. So that was an interesting, for me, the main reason that I did it was, again, an opportunity to try my hand at a different voice, but Truthfully, it was because I knew that all my scenes were with Tom Wilkinson, and I just think he's—I think he's one of the best actors out there. And as far as character actors go, that's a career that I wouldn't mind emulating. Well, what's great is I know the Sinatra in real life. I mean, the reason he stopped talking to Peter Lawford was because of the whole—he didn't. Peter Lawford said, "Oh, you know what? You're connected to the mafia. You know, they think 
Uh, he's going to stay at Bing Crosby's house. And that's the way Sinatra was. Sinatra said, screw you. I'm never talking to you again. Mm -hmm. And that's what's great about this show because people don't know. I mean, Sinatra, I'm sure that was the time he was very humbled because it's like, wait a second. I'm Sinatra, the president. I've been helping him. Wait, you're not going to stay with me? And it was, I heard it was, uh, it was more of a, what's his name? Uh, Bobby Kennedy mm -hmm. who made the decision more than, but then they blamed, you know, Peter Lawfer, but you know, he shouldn't have been there anyway. <laughs> He was just hanging out because he knew the Shrivers. <laughs> so now you're doing this, and now all of a sudden you're acting. You're getting a lot of work. Yeah, things are going okay. And now when does the Three Stooges opportunity come up? And so, were you a Stooges fan as a kid? Okay. Um, two separate questions I'll answer quickly. Um, so yes, when work was happening, work was great. The thing that I hadn't anticipated moving out to L.A. was how challenging the downtime was. You know, in New York, there was always something to get involved in even if i mean just the city in general as an actor there'd be a voiceover thing here or a tv commercial there or you gotta do this or go to a class or whatever in la when it's dead man it's hard to find it's hard to find not the motivation but action and um i didn't recognize the whole pilot season beast until i was so deep in it and I have to say, man, that is a whole different kind of grind because working on a guest star here and there, doing a recurring here and there, maybe getting a part in a TV movie, that's all well and good. But the meat and potatoes of an actor's life, particularly before they've achieved any sort of acclaim, they want to get on a series, right? And so pilot season, typically or historically, between January and late March, early April, is, is the time when all of the, when all of the networks put out their new shows, dramas and comedies. And so I was, you know, for 10 years, odd. so the process would be you go in and you read for the casting director. The casting director likes you. They bring you in to read for the producers. The producers like you. They bring you in to do a work session with the director. Then business affairs from the studio calls your agents and they open a deal. They open the deal for, the, for what your contract's going to be potentially for seven years if this thing gets picked up. Then you go in and you test for the studio you and maybe eight, ten guys, uh, all test for the same part. They whittle it down to maybe three or four guys, or maybe everyone gets kicked out except you, and then they bring in a ringer. Then you go in for the network. And the network deliberates, and you either get it or you don't. And so I was involved in that process probably over 50 times, uh, which, you know, when you add each session to it, it's like, you know, over 200 times of these potential, you know, you got the contract in front of you for seven years every time, right? So it's the potentiality of, holy shit, this could be the thing. And it, it happened so many times and it didn't happen every time that it sort of numbed me to the ability to sort of think that, you know, maybe that thing is out there. It just completely destroyed that. So Stooges came along uh, twice for me. So first of all, I was a die-hard Stooge fan as a kid, um, and Will and Sean would attest to this. Both of them knew the Stooges, both of them admired the Stooges, but I was certifiably insane about the Stooges uh, as a kid, particularly as a, as a young kid up until you know probably about 15 or 16, and then I kind of lost touch with them, and, and then it wasn't until I started hearing about the embers of this movie in like early 2000s that I started thinking about them again. Um, but... It was, it was a similar sort of thing. I knew they were going to make this movie, and Pete and Bob, I remember they put out some sort of a, an article in Variety, basically like a, 
a call to arms. They they wanted Molary and Curly to walk in the door, and they you know they were like, we don't care who you are, we don't care what you do for a living, or just if you're if you can be Mo and you can right. walk in and be Mo, <laughs> we'll give you a chance. But you got to fucking be Mo. Sorry. Um, so anyway, uh, I I resisted the audition only because I love the Stooges so much and the the plain truth was I, I physically resembled none of them and I never identified as any of them. I, my love for the Stooges was all three of them. I mean, if anything, I went through phases. I, I took you for a Carly Joe yeah, Besser so, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Bite your tongue, man. <laughs> no, but I, when I was a kid, when I was a really, when I was really young, I loved Curly. It was the obvious choice. I, I really started loving Larry in my like mid-teens and just watching what Larry did. I loved Shemp. And I loved Mo. Mo made me, you know, laugh my ass off. But I, I never really identified with any of them. And 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 I remember commiserating to my wife. It was in the midst of one of these pilot seasons where I was getting close to stuff and just not not booking the job. I said they're doing this Stooges thing, and there's a big open call. And I don't know. I feel kind of bitter about it. I I, I want it. And she said, well, "You love the Stooges." I said, "I know, but I don't look like Larry. I, I don't have time to like, gain the weight to do the curly thing." And and she said, "Look, you're." You're Mo, and you just need to, you know, forget about all the rest and just go be Mo. And so I thought about it, and I spent a, a good few days in front of the mirror, really sort of just trying to find out and figure out what that would be. And I was surprised because the years of, I mean, I watched Stooges every single day. We we would record them on VHS and on Beta, and my brother and I would just play them back over and over and over. Um, it, it was pretty quick i realized okay so the first thing is physically I, i'm i, I got to shift my body up so i went to a foam store and i bought foam to sort of shorten my neck i held my shoulders up i went to a wig shop bought a wig put it on i filled in my eyebrows i put on the scowl and then and i just sort of thought all right well let's give this a try and i got to the audition and no one else was in character and there was a memo sent out basically saying come in we want you to be molary and curly but you know let's let's not be ridiculous here. Just come in and, you know, and I literally showed up dressed like in the worst <laughs> Mo costume you've ever seen. And, uh, but fortunately, you know, it was, um, it, it wasn't enough to detract them from wanting to see me again. And it was a long process. I, the first audition was in October and I didn't get the job until May. Okay. And so I auditioned 14 times. Wow. So for, now are you sitting there? I mean, as you said, you've been through the whole pilot thing. You've been all through that. And now you're going, okay, I'm going to try this. And now you're sitting there going, holy crap, this this is longer than the pilot thing. What would they say to you? Hey, you know what? Come back. I mean, for 14 times, you know, once you get past seven, you have to say, um, are they ever even going to make this movie? So I, after the first time, I, um, I got some notes from the writer, Mike Cerrone, who's a great guy who was in the room basically just told me to calm down. He's like, I know you, I, I can tell you love the Stooges. He said, I love the Stooges too. This is going to be a long process. You got to, you got to, you got to ration your passion here. And just because this is going to take a while. I started hearing by the second and third audition that there really was no chance that I was going to get this because the studio, as much as the Farrelly's were saying, we want Mo, what the studio was saying was we want a name, which I don't blame them. It makes sense. Um, and over the course of those 14 auditions, the role was offered out to other people. Uh, and there were various reasons why it didn't happen. And when it wouldn't happen, um, contract scheduling stuff, they would call again and say, all right, come back in. 
And so what was happening was Pete and Bob were pleading their case for me to be Mo to the studio, but the studio just didn't hear, want to hear it, didn't see it, didn't... They just... There are certain metrics, I think, that go into these decisions, and I wasn't, I wasn't part of that metric. And uh, Pete leveled with me at one point. I think it was maybe the sixth, seventh audition. He said, look, you're doing... And I never showed up out of character. And I never even spoke to them out of character. I spoke to them like Mo, which is... You know, I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but I just didn't. I, I'm so not him in person that I didn't want to give them any indication to see me as anything other than Mo. He said, "Look, you're doing a great job, but you got to help us. Your wig is terrible. Your costume is terrible. I don't know what to tell you." And I was like, "All right, say no more." So I, with, with my own money, I, I hired a, a makeup artist. This great makeup artist. He's an Oscar, I think, award winner, Christian Tinsley, who did this the makeup for Passion of the Christ. I had to make prosthetic under eye bags and earlobes and really sort of, you know, made me look like Mo. We didn't use any of that in the movie, but he did it for, um, for the rest of the auditions. And I, I, uh, rented a proper weight suit and proper vintage 1940s clothing from, uh, universal, uh, wardrobe. And, um, I mean, I rented this stuff out for months just in the off chance that they would call me to go back in. And when they finally did, it's as you said, the studio was losing faith in the movie. After they'd cast Sean and Will, and it was taking so long to cast Mo, the studio asked Pete and Bob to put together a short to sort of show them what the vision for the film was going to be. And Pete called me and he said, we want you to do this with us. You know, it's not just you getting the job here, it's the job happening. So, you know, don't don't screw it up. And I did that. And, uh, and then I got the call. Pete called me and he said... Uh, he said, look, I've, I've never known an actor to be more deserving of a role, and I just feel like God's going to give me cancer if I don't give you this, so you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you go into that movie, and yeah. Farley, everyone loves the Farley Brothers. Oh, they're I great mean, guys, you know, man. If, if, you, if you watch comedy, you know, you, whether it be Kingpin, I mean, yep. you, you, you love them. So the movie comes, does, comes out, and you mm-hmm. said, it got good reviews. Yeah. And so now, how does that change your career? Because all of a sudden, you know, is that after that you started, you got office and rest development? Or I mean, how did people sit there and did they look at you as like, well, wait a second. Well, this guy's Mo. I'll say this. Um, so it changed my life because I got to live out a childhood fantasy of mine. And it changed my life because I got to meet and work with not only Pete and Bob, whom I would, you know, walk to the end of the earth for, but also Will and Sean. I think they're terrific guys and just great talents. It changed my life because that is a singular opportunity, whether we did another five movies in the Stooge vein or not, that one was the one where it was do or die. You know, there were so many people saying, this is an abomination, nobody should do this, you shouldn't make it. And our, you know, our point was, we're making the movie in honor of the Stooges, this is a representation of the Stooges. You know, we're not saying we're Molaire and Curly, we're saying, you know, this is us doing Molaire and Curly, yes? And so it was a great a great opportunity. It didn't translate into the career in the way that, you know, maybe in the vast regions of my mind, I would have hoped. What ended up coming back to my managers and agents was, well, he was great as Mo, but can he do anything else? And that always caused me to sort of smile because it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I've been on Broadway. <laughs> well, no, but it's it's more it's more though that like, you know, I. I don't look anything like that, and I don't sound anything like that, and and so you know, one would think that if I can, you know, shift to do that, then maybe I can just do the regular, uh, you know, other thing. But uh, no, it it 
the office and arrest development did come on the heels of that but that was i think a credit to allison jones who was the casting director on those and she's just brilliant and she's um she was uh, intuitive decisive and kind enough to give me who was still an unknown even after the stooges an opportunity to go into those rooms and win these roles um so you know some there was some uh gumption that came as a result of doing the movie and simply having my name out there i guess um but no man it's 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 continued to be a grind it was a grind before was after and i think i think when it comes to doing the work that you want to do it's always a grind and that in it in and of itself is gratifying somehow so as you do it, you know you're working, you're working, and then you end up on uh, you end up on episodes. Yeah, oh which, man, which I love. Kathleen Rose has been on the show. She's, and, uh, that she hasn't won three Emmys for, for that is she, unbelievable. Every, everyone I know who watches that, my girlfriend, you know, she likes different TV. And I, when she came, you know, moved out, I said you got to watch this show because I would watch it. And she was like, "Holy crap, this thing is great!" Now for you, it must be great because you really play a nut. I mean, as an actor, it must be because, and when we'll get to Silicon Valley, you play nutcases, and I mean, you're you're just over the top, but it doesn't look it. You don't. That's you, kind of you to if say. If you've been in Hollywood, you say, yeah, yeah, I I met, met that, that guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> how did they tell you to come? Because you know, John Pankow was a was the douche who she was involved with. Brilliant. Oh, he's amazing. He's oh, so he's, he's such a good actor. But you he, talk about character actors. Yeah, that guy's. He was fantastic. a douche to Kathleen. And yes. You like Kathleen? Yes. Then you come on, and yeah. you're just. I mean, some of the scenes you're just being such a cold scent <laughs> like you're having sex with her as you're like just sitting there and everyone knows you're using her and she's like how did that role come about did you play it exactly how i wanted or did you go so harder? so so much of the okay so episodes to me is like the best kept secret i oh, think yeah. it's it's such a brilliant show it's such a horrifying and illuminating look at this industry and it is so absolutely divinely written by uh, Jeffrey and David and everything that you see on the screen was on the page and I mean everything I mean even the cadence of the way that that the characters speak is indicated in parentheticals they they put in guttural noises like, eh, they'll write I mean there isn't a single thing that that is done on screen that that they don't write they're so specific uh, which is a very different way to work you know a lot of a lot of writers, you know, want improv or they want the actors to play with the material. Jeffrey and David, it's it's almost written like a musical composition. They hear it a certain way. Um, so I auditioned for that role on my iPhone. I was in Toronto shooting a movie, this movie, uh, Dr. Cabby, which was a lot of fun. And I played another horrible human being on that. But anyway, um, uh, uh, I thought there's no chance in hell that I'm going to get this. But I loved the material, so I really went for it. And it was just luck that I read it in the cadence that they had heard it. And I and so I got the part. And one of the first things that struck me as unique was as soon as I got to London, we did a table read for the studio, all of us and all of the studio executives. We did a table read of every single episode. It was like a seven-hour table read. So they could hear everything, and then we could go into shooting. I've never seen that happen before. Normally... They're writing scripts as you shoot, you know. I mean, here everything was was fully written. Um, I I was given the opportunity to inform some of the emotionality of the character, but they knew exactly what they wanted. So I basically showed up prepared, knowing every single word, 
and gave them their words as they had intended them. And then, you know, you put me next to Kathleen and all of a sudden I'm giving a good performance because she's just so nuanced and so tragic you know, oh, it's 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 you know it's, it amazes me that she's not a household name because everyone who watches it says because I posted it when she was on the show. You know, yeah. everyone I I who I know watches it were like, oh my god, she's so amazing in that show. She, and it's like she but, well, she's a unicorn, right? Because she's she's a beautiful, smart, self-effacing, funny actress. You know that that's it's very very hard to find that. Now, did you have a lot of pleasure playing that role? Because you know it's something that you you go from. I mean, you, you're Mo. You, you do when you do Mo. Of course, you know you're Mo. But now you're doing this guy who's just. I mean, did you f- say this is great? I'm just playing this whack job. When you're given carte blanche to be a character that possesses little to no redeeming characteristics, it's liberating because you can do. So I got to utilize so much of what had been thrown in my face in this industry over the course of the years from studio executives and casting directors and directors and producers and agents and managers and these this idiosyncratic, vile behavior that had been, you know, slung at me over the years. It was nice to sort of recognize that there was a great reason for it. It was an opportunity. It was fodder for me to just put it up on screen. So I, I took great pleasure in it. I can imagine. And then the thing is, though, now, you know, going back to your career, you know, you were doing all, all The Office, the mm-hmm. rest of the development mm-hmm. episodes, mm-hmm. The, working with the Farrelly's. Yep. And now, and then you get up on Silicon Valley. Now, were you, did they know, did they sit there and say, this guy, did anyone see you in episodes and say, this guy would be perfect for the part? No. Because once again, you play the douche to the T. You know, I it's mean, it's fun. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> I, um, I, I. You know, I think that Castor Soto and Russ Hanneman are very different, diametrically opposed, actually. They both are not nice human beings, and they both certainly have a, a stance and a, a sort of view on life, but um, there is a, a sort of an elitist pedigree that Castor has that Russ definitely doesn't have. Uh, there's a proletariat vibe that Russ definitely lives in that Castor wouldn't be seen touching. I feel like they're they're you know maybe brothers from another mother, but no no I I fought for that role I actually fought for that role I found out about the audition I loved Silicon Valley such a good I'm show a massive fan of the show, and um, I I got the material for the audition it was lush thick fourteen pages to just go in and you know read for them and it was the wrong material the character had completely changed. I'd worked on it for like five, six days, memorizing it, figuring it out, learning what I was going to do. And then when I got there, they said, oh, you got the wrong material. It's new material. I said, well, how many pa- how many pages is it? They said, you know, it's like 15 or 16 pages. And I'm not great at cold reads. And I said, look, let me just do the material I learned. And so I did it. And it didn't go over great because the character had changed and they weren't interested in that material anymore. And I get it. So I called my agent the next day and I said, you know, I really love that role. He said, they're looking at someone else. Now, they were looking at someone else. This is a guy that I, I know. He's a good actor. And we both sort of came up from New York at the same time and started working in television around the same time. And he's good. And he's really good. And he, he deserves all, all the work that he's had, but he wasn't right for this role. And, and I said to my agent, no, 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 they can't, they can't look at that guy. I'm the guy. He said, you know, no, I think this one is done. Um, it, it's, it's him. And I think actually my agent reps him too. And, and I said, look, He's a great guy, but he's not right for this. He said, I think the ship has sailed. And so I called the casting director and I said, look, let me come in with the new material. 
let me let me learn it. And let me come in. She said, I think they're moving quick on this, but if you want to come in, I'll, I'll work with you on it. We can put you on tape. I can't promise they'll watch it. It was Jeannie McCarthy. She's a great casting director. So I went in and I did it six ways from Sunday. Like I did different versions. I did like sort of a McConaughey version of Russ Hanneman. I did a real sort of Brooklyn-esque version. of. We tried it in a number of different ways. And we sent it into the ether. And I got the part. And what was amazing was when I finally showed up on set, I approached Mike Judge and Alec Berg, um, who are just two of the smartest, nicest guys I've ever worked with. And I said, you know, guys, I've been trying to get a hold of you to find out which version do you want. And their answer was, well, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, it's great. The whole one of the great things is when you the whole when you freak out about the doors. Yeah. And that's yeah. something that you just watch. And once again, it's just in a basic writing. That's that's not funny. Like, right. About the doors. But when right. the way you acted out, which always, we would just crack up because it's like, once again, Silicon Valley. I mean, the show just is so well written. It's yeah. so funny. And so, but now, so you're getting, you're involved in all these good projects. And yeah. now, now you also did the family guy and you started doing voice stuff. How'd the voice stuff? Cause I know you're Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And, and then, well, how did Mickey Mouse come up? You know, you're crazy guy. You're this guy, you're Mo. And then you're America's sweetheart, Mickey Mouse. How'd that happen? It's uh, so I, I, before I came out to LA, uh, to, to sort of subsidize my Broadway career, because despite the fact that Broadway is uh, an honor to do, uh, sometimes it doesn't pay as well as as you would hope. And so I started getting into a bunch of voiceover stuff, like, you know, car commercials, banks, pharmaceuticals, whatever it was. And the voiceover stuff paid well, and it was kind of gratifying to do, just great to, you know, work with my voice. Um, when I came out to L.A., that all dried up because none of the big ad houses cast out of Los Angeles. But there were all these casting directors for voice things, like animated things. And so my agents in New York had some pull and they got me in to meet some of these casting people. And one of them is um, a casting director named Linda Lamontagne who casts Family Guy and American Dad among many, many other things. I used to work at a restaurant with her sister. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, that's a small Denise, world, man. Sister small Denise. world. Well, Linda has been tremendously generous to me in my career, particularly in the early days when you know nobody had a clue who I was. And she really gave me chances. Um, on on some great shows and and continues to now bring me in and and it was doing a few animated things uh, you know with Linda that um, sort of uh, got my you know toe dipped in and then um, I heard that they were looking for a new voice for Mickey Mouse they wanted to do these sort of retro shorts sort of a, a callback to what Walt did back in the day you know, more like post-Steamboat Willie stuff, uh, Brave Little Taylor, and sort of the real sort of root of Mickey, but but done in a, a modern way with a wink toward the past, and, and international shorts as well. They wanted to do them in multiple languages and, and have the new Mickey voice them in all these different languages. Um, and I was really cautious about it, uh, but it, I, I watched this documentary with Walt, and he had this very resonant baritone voice and he was smoking and talking and then when he when he did uh, when the interviewer asked him to do Mickey he leapt onto his feet and engaged his body and, and did his Mickey and I thought oh that makes sense you know uh, and so I, I, I really sort of just tried to copy what he did and I did and it worked out and um, it's been a ball it's been four seasons or th three or four seasons I think I've done over 40 of the shorts we just, um, I'm probably not supposed to say this, but we just did a very special longer short that's going to come out next year. Um, and it's been, you know, everything from, 
Mickey in Italian and French and Hindi and uh, and, and uh, Portuguese to singing as Mickey, and it's just been a dream come true. I wear it with a real badge of honor. Did you ever sit there and think, God, you know, I played I'm, I'm Mickey Mouse, I played Mo, I played Sinatra, I played Robin Williams. I mean, it's like it's like you must sit there and go, you played all these icons. It must be a great feeling. It's a really, I mean, I feel so grateful to have had the opportunity to do those things man really truly now what were you shooting in new york or my brother's street? ah that's so funny what a small world no because he said he put today because eh? I, I my brother never sits there and really posts on facebook and i, I posted a picture of who's gonna be on i had of you and then Catherine Dent, and then there's a drummer kenny aaron off oh cool you. cool and i always do it with a picture of me and i go you know it's a little photo lab app oh nice and um he goes yeah that guy they he goes they shoot a lot of stuff on my street and his trailer was right in front of our building. So funny. So what, what, what were you shooting? So I was shooting a pilot for Amazon, a drama called The Good Girls Revolt. Um, it's just this very, very smart um, and acerbic um, period piece. 1969, Newsweek Magazine, New York, and um, the embers of women equality in the workforce. Uh, it stars uh, me and Anna Camp, Jim Belushi's in it, um, Hunter Parrish, uh, this great actress named Genevieve Angelson. Um, it's a, it's just this really great sort of. I mean, people are saying, "Wow, it's the answer to where Mad Men left off." I mean, I feel like it's, it's very uh, different than that, and 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 has a different nuance to it. But I play the editor at large of Newsweek. Um, great character. This guy sort of straddling two generations. You know, the old guard. And, you know, recognizing that there's a sea change coming. Um, and so we did the pilot in New York, and Amazon picked it up for a full series. So we start shooting the series in a few weeks. In New York? We're going to be shooting in Los Angeles. Actually. Okay. Yeah. That's weird how it works sometimes. It's yeah. like, you know, you'd be, you'd be sitting there, I, I could have my brother come up to you and say, hey, <laughs> yeah, hey you're right. on the show with my brother. Right, right. right. And now, what's it like for you to go back to drama? Because you've been doing comedy, co- you've been doing a lot of comedy. I love both. Um and I just feel like wherever I can facilitate in a role is where I want to go. I started feeling like what what started happening after Silicon Valley, it was such a fun character to play and so broad and so specific that some of the opportunities that were coming my way were sort of watered down versions of what Russ was. And I don't want to do that. I, um, you know, I always try to give my best attention to an opportunity that comes up, but I was actually sort of itching to do something completely um diametrically different than what i had done last so this came at the perfect time this character is um he's straight laced and he carries a heavy burden and he's um he's a man you know what i mean and i you know i only have a, a vague sort of concept of what that might be but this guy definitely is a man now, is there ever theater in your future, or are you For sure? Going, I mean, is that something you want to do? For sure, it? yes, absolutely, yeah. No, I um, I, I'm looking for the right opportunity. You know, I um, I told you I did Man of La Mancha in high school. It was the it's to date the, the most fun I've ever had on any production ever. And my wish list would be in ten years to mount a Broadway production of that and and do that. But no, I um. I did. I went to London and did a workshop of a show called Groundhog Day, the musical. You know, the Bill Murray movie. Right. They're, they're making that uh, into a musical. I, I, you know, I, I was. I've been looking for sort of short-term engagements in the theater. That was just a couple of weeks. Uh, the, the Globe did. There have been a few opportunities that have come my way, but the engagements have just been a little too long. I've got two young kids, so 
I have to sort of tread carefully with regard to that. But I feel like maybe when the kids get a little older and maybe when I've established myself more um, uh, as a credible or bankable name, I can look to do something in the theater. It could be a lot of fun. Now, is there a Three Stooges sequel coming up? or You know, uh, all signs point to yes. Um, there's a script that's been written, and I know that Sean and Will and I are keen to do it. I don't know right now because of their schedule if and how Pete and Bob are going to be involved. Um, by God, we we would, you know, it would be a real shame if they weren't. Um, but I know that the the C3 Entertainment, the, the guys who are the rights holders to the Stooges, they are very keen to make a second movie. So yeah, they're they're pushing forward to do it, and we're all we're all on board. We're just still not sure when, where, and how. Now, when does Good Girls Revolt start shooting? So that'll start shooting in April out here in out LA. here, and it will. I think it's gonna drop on Amazon. Is that the terminology? Drop. I think okay. I, it's like I watched. You know, it's it's something that I uh. I love Amazon. Yeah, so, it'll be on Amazon Prime in December, I believe. Okay, so they're going to do it. So they'll do gonna, the full the full season. Right. Yeah. That's always good too. Now it must also be good for as an actor now because you've been in so many different roles that with all the 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 Netflix and the Hulu's mm-hmm. and you can find all this stuff. You must get just different people who now are finding your work. It's great, you know. And I have to say, I I wasn't sure how the model was going to work working for Amazon, but man, oh man, they do it right. Just you know. They've they've really honed in on what has worked in the network and cable model, and and then what hasn't worked. And to their credit, I feel like they've eliminated so much of what doesn't work, and they're all about just making quality programming. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I want to thank you. We have just a few minutes left. Now, you're, are you also the voice of Charles Schwab? Is that really- I was the sort of face of that for a period of time. Yeah, I was the guy. I was. You know the talk to Chuck guy. Okay. Um, which was great fun. That was a, a great gig. You know, four days in New York, and we shot like thirty six commercials. It was it's good stuff. Not bad. You can't complain that. So uh, okay. So now you're new to social media. Brand new. Okay. Now let's give some of your info. Now Twitter, you're the real. No. So it's on all platforms. It's classic Chris D at classic Chris D is basically what it is. Classic C L A S S I C Chris C H R I S D, at Classic Chris D. And now you're starting to post on... I'm starting to post on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm you know, get, sort of getting my feet wet with what do you, What do you post on Instagram? You know, uh, I tend to sort of try and keep it professional. So if I'm working on something, you know, it, it usually has to do with that. But uh, I'm figuring out what the parameters are, what I what I wanted, you know, what I want to post and what, what, what feels like fun. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm it's glad. It's a real pleasure being here. I, I'm, I'm glad I said I, I hit you up on Twitter. It takes a while. I was like, and I hate, you know, I'm, but you came on, so it's great. So people follow him. Classic, class, not classic, the, Christy. classic, yeah. classic Christie. Follow him. Follow me on Instagram, Cooper Talk One. Follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk because I tweet a lot during his political stuff. Just jokes. People don't get pissed at me. They, they start arguing on my Facebook page because all my Twitter goes to Facebook. I'm like, guys, I'm just joking around. Leave it alone. Also, you can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net, and go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 486 episodes up, so please do that. iTunes, Stitcher, one word, Cooper Talk. want to give a shout-out to my uh, new affiliate, K. Uh, I forget it. It's WRM. WRM in Detroit. WRM.com. Or WRM. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm 
this might I gotta send this to they just they just started with me. Don't worry about it. And also go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know when I had a heart problem, I had to change my diet. So um I had the cookbook. It's a low sodium recipes, 120 of them. Easy to make, no pictures to intimidate you. The ingredients, hey, they're basic ingredients. You don't you don't have cumin. I cook with cumin, but if you don't have cumin, don't worry about it. You can get it on my website, stopthesalt.com. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes Noble. But if you get it from me, one, I'll sign it. Two, I'd make more money. So anyway, please follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.